Welcome to the Healing Trauma Podcast, a space for those who are healing from complex and developmental trauma. Introducing your host, Monique Coven, a certified trauma recovery coach, survivor, and thriver. The intent of the podcast is to provide helpful information with insight that can validate, encourage, and support you on your healing journey. You're going to hear stories from other survivors and trauma experts, featuring therapists, coaches, and practitioners. We will open up the conversation on effective trauma healing modalities, practices, and tools. If you are interested in trauma recovery coaching, as well as recommended books and healing resources, head over to www.thehealingtraumapodcast.com. And now, here is your host, Monique Coven. Welcome back, everyone. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking with Kelly Gunter. And Kelly is an author, she is a speaker, she's a licensed therapist and a coach, and we are going to be talking a little bit about her her story. She wrote a book called You Have Such a Pretty Face, which talks about her weight loss of 243 pounds and how after losing the weight, she realized that she didn't feel any better. And we all know that when we have tried something we think is going to make us feel better, whether that is losing weight or getting that next thing or trying something, we think that's going to that's gonna do it. And we realize that it's really sort of a temporary fix because we still feel the same feelings inside. And so she's going to be talking about her life and really some of the things that started to show up that was really underneath uh, some of the coping mechanisms that she used. What was hiding under there was really her trauma and her traumatic childhood. And she's going to talk about how um, she used different substances or coping strategies to help her and just how that impacted her life. She also is a person of great hope and so much inspiration when she talks about hope because she really feels like she has seen change and experienced change and that there is hope no matter what you go through. And so I do want to issue a trauma um, warning or a trigger warning, I should say, trauma trigger warning, because there is going to be discussion of uh, sexual abuse. And for those of you who feel that may be triggering, then this episode might not be right for you at this time. And you can maybe listen to another episode. But those of you who do listen, uh, I hope that you find it helpful and um, take good care while you are listening. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this. I'm so glad you're here. And we are going to be talking about, about your story. I know that you wrote a book called You Have Such a Pretty Face. And it's your memoir about trauma, 
and hope and the joy that follows survival. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about your, your family background? Yes. Um, I grew up with my mom, my dad, and my older teenage brothers. And um, my dad died when I was very young. And so um, my older teenage brothers started sexually abusing me. Um, the first time that I was raped, I was seven. And so that abuse went on until I was 14. And it ended because they finally moved out of the house at that point. And so that trauma that I experienced daily, sometimes more than once a day because I had two brothers. So it wasn't unusual for both of them to abuse me on the same day, um, went on for seven years of my life. And so the that trauma that never was able to heal, that was never given a voice, was the catalyst for a life that just was riddled with addiction, self-destruction, and mistakes. And um, myself, I've been a licensed therapist for 30 years. And so here I was with this big facade up to the world that, you know, hey, I have a great life. I've never been through anything. And, you know, just that face that I learned to wear very early on because I lived in constant fear, constant fear of what will happen. I mean, they threatened to kill me, to drown me, to tie me up, to do, to kill my dog. I mean, you name it, every possible threat and intimidation that could happen, happened. And so I grew up very afraid and very much, I have to keep the secret because the one time that I tried to tell, I tried to tell after the first rape and I tried to tell my mom and um, apparently I just didn't use the words that adequately conveyed what happened to me. Um, I conveyed something though, because she said something to someone and what I knew was that I was raped again very soon after the violence was up to notch, the brutality of it was up to notch, and the threats were even worse. And so what that taught me was at that time, I'm never telling anybody. Like, I will take this secret to my grave with me because I was powerless. My mom worked. She owned a business, and she was gone until late hours of the night, and they were my babysitters. And so I literally couldn't escape it. I I, I don't have any words for that. It's just, it's, it's seven years old yeah. and, 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 and just keeping all of that in and the, the amount of fear that a little child like that has to carry and live with. Um, so no, it should be your safe haven. Yeah. And you know, what that did was set me up for a very twisted, an irrational view of what love was because how many rape victims have to have breakfast in the morning with the person who raped them the night before? Mm-hmm. How many rape victims have to hand the rapist a Christmas present? And that was my truth. And so what my little brain as it was growing and developing and becoming learned was the people who love you hurt you and you tolerate it and you put up with it. And so that of course, was the fuel for a life of horrible relationships that I talk about in in my book. And, um, you know, the You Have Such a Pretty Face, the title of my book is because 
I used food as comfort. And by the time I got into my early 20s, I was over 300 pounds. And so people would say to me, oh, Kelly, it's such a shame about your weight. You have such a pretty face. So that's what the title of that book is about. And, you know, that just reinforced to me what I already knew, like I wasn't enough. And, you know, that whether what body I was in or whatever, I wasn't enough because it just it's just too bad about Kelly's weight, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and I got the message loud and clear, like, but my body is terrible. And I already had I didn't have low self-esteem as a result of my trauma. I had no self-esteem. I knew I was worthless. I was just determined that I didn't let the rest of the world know it. And so eventually by my thirties, I was almost 400 pounds. And so I lived at that weight until my late thirties when I finally had weight loss surgery, lost 243 pounds. And I've kept that off now for 20 years. So my book is about, yeah, the the weight and the weight loss, but it's more about the trauma that fueled it because losing the weight wasn't the magic eraser for all the problems of my life. Yeah, let, I mean, uh, a lot of people can relate to to the weight issue thing and, and we'll use weight here because that was your experience. But when you think about it, um, how does a child who's in such horror horrible environment how do they make themselves feel a little bit of safety how do they regulate their nervous system and I think grabbing food makes sense it was it was the thing that as a baby you know we sort of learn and Mm -hmm. so that makes so much sense that that would become for you a coping strategy because eating that feeling of eating it, it it's soothing Yeah, absolutely. Food was my best friend. And um, I still love food. I mean, I just today have the capability to have control over the choices I make when it comes to food. I mean, I will always be a comfort food connoisseur, you know, I mean, but yes, there was just so much pain. And as a little girl, I had no idea how to survive. I had no idea how to cope because what I knew was the only certainty I faced was uncertainty. I knew no one was going to protect me. One time when I was being raped, I was just a little, I mean, I'm little. So I'm screaming for my mommy who's actually in another city. And, you know, and my brother just slammed his hand over my mouth and said, you know, she can't hear you. Like no one's coming, you know, and So that message Mm -hmm. just resonated with me throughout my life, like no one is coming. And so the survival skills that I developed as a child just became incredibly unhealthy coping mechanisms as an adult. And, you know, we don't all of a sudden change our brain when we turn 18 and, and leave our home. And then all of a sudden, okay, now I don't have to utilize those anymore. I mean, they were very well worn paths in my brain and, um, And until I would address that wound, which took many years, (laughs) um, you know, I was going to keep making bad decisions and, you know, struggling. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, and this is what I got out of your book, but I think people can relate is that you, you try to lose weight and you think that when I lose weight, okay, now I'm going to feel better and yeah we look better we might feel more healthier 
those feelings, the emotional dysregulation, it's still there. Excuse me. Yes. I thought losing weight was the answer to my problems. You know, in high school, I was an athlete. I was a cheerleader, but I was always the bigger girl. And even though I wasn't obese or anything in high school, but still I was bigger than everybody else. And, um, but I always thought, well, if I could just be thin, everything would be okay. I believe that even though like, of course you take the classes before surgery and they tell you, you know, this isn't going to fix everything. And you're like, yes, I know. But in your mind, you think, yes, it will. Everything will be okay. If I can just look a certain way, people will love me. Like I will get a good relationship. And what I learned really quickly after I lost all of the weight was that food was my band-aid and I needed to talk about my wound because after weight loss surgery, I couldn't overeat anymore. And so I got new band-aids that were equally devastating to my life. And so I went from cross addiction to cross addiction, which is very, very common after weight loss surgery. A lot of people don't realize that, but so, and I just kept getting a new band-aid. I'd overcome one and go to the next. And um, because the problem with, like I said earlier, when someone else inflicting trauma on us made a mess and, but I had to be the one to clean it up. And I couldn't, I couldn't get to that place in spite of being a therapist. And that's what I, I really try to share with people is that that's how powerful the shame that accompanies sexual abuse is because we don't want to talk about it. And I, you know, being a therapist that long, I would treat people who were sexually abused. I, you know, I could help everybody else, but I couldn't help myself, right? That myth of the wounded healer. And um, so, but I, I, I wonder how people deal who, you know, didn't, I mean, if a licensed therapist can't deal with her own trauma, then how do we expect somebody who doesn't, he hasn't even studied counseling and psychotherapy and everything to deal with it. And it's just, that's how powerful the trauma is. That's my point that it doesn't matter what you do, who you are, where you've been like trauma will sit in the control room of your soul and quietly dictate all of the calamities of your life. You know, it will be the, it's right there in that control room Mm -hmm. and, um, and it will wait, it will wait. It just, ominously sits like fog and it just won't dissipate. And so I just realized nothing is going well for me because everywhere I went, I took me with me. And at that point I was the problem. You know, it's making me think about, you know, now we are becoming more trauma informed, but Mm -hmm. you know, you hear people say, well, what's wrong with you? Oh, she has an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Oh, she has anorexia. Oh, she has this drug problem. And it was always kind of looking at the surface. And now with the trauma-informed lens, we're starting to see those are those are desperate measures to try to feel a little bit more regulated from the, the dysregulation that trauma has right. caused. Yeah. And so starting to, to deal with the trauma and the dysregulation actually, that we can start to find ourselves changing. If you'd like to find out more about trauma recovery coaching with me, you can visit my website at thehealingtraumapodcast.com. 
there you'll find a variety of ways that we could work together. Tell us a little bit more then, uh, when you saw that, okay, you had the surgery, now you were at a weight that you felt good, but yet you still saw that even after bouncing to cross um, addictions and uh, different, different things, how did that, like, how did that play out? Yeah. So eventually um, I had started a small business of my own. It had grown and become quite successful and um, I developed a gambling addiction. And I mean, I had numerous addictions in between, you know, people would say, Oh, Kelly works hard and she plays hard. No, that playing hard was addiction, but the people in my circle, you know, it's not their job to fix me and it's not their job to recognize what, you know, they thought everything was good in my life. And that literally is what so many of them said. Oh, she works hard. She plays hard. And so ultimately the gambling addiction, I misused monies from the business and I had to step down from a a company that I had started and ran for 13 years. I lost everything. I was charged with theft for the misuse of those monies. And I mean, I completely lost everything, everybody I loved, every single friend I had. I had one friend who stood by me through that storm. And that is when I finally went to treatment. And just to talk about how powerful that shame is, the the night before I left to go to treatment, because I went to treatment in Sedona, Arizona, um, one of the people on the board of directors for my company said to me, you know, I don't know what's going on with you, Kelly. And she said, like, I know you're a good person. She said, so whatever is going on with you, just tell them, just be honest. And I said, oh, I will. Like, I'm, and the thing is, my judgment was so impaired by that trauma. You know, the way that trauma affects our brain as far as impulsivity, consequential thinking, all of those things. And my, it was so impaired. I didn't even hide what that I used money. I turned in receipts from the casino. <laughs> I mean, because I, I didn't think, oh, that's a crime. Like I was paying the money back. And so that's how impaired my consequential thinking was, mm-hmm. my judgment that I wasn't trying to hide anything. And I just was out of control. I mean, I just was like a freight train charging down the track and like it just wasn't going to end well. And so, and it was devastating because Sitting on the plane to fly to Sedona, I was thinking about the words that the lady had said to me. And and sitting on that plane, I thought, I'll tell them everything, but I'm not talking about that abuse. And so when I got to Sedona, um, I actually, the director of the place I went, I went to the Institute of Wholeness. She was like, actually took my case. And, you know, they said, we knew we had our hands full with you because you've been a therapist all these years. You, you know, like you knew what we were digging for. And I was determined to not, to not speak about it. And so it took them days to drag it out of me. And I just wouldn't, at one point I was sitting in her office and they set a doll that was like the age of a seven-year-old little girl in front of me. And they said, that's you. And what did she need to hear? Like, we want you to tell her what she needed to hear. And I wouldn't do it. Like I sat there for hours and I just couldn't speak. There just was, 
such a knot in my throat. Like I had lost everything. I lost my business, my income, my home, all my friends, the man I loved, every single possible thing. I was on the front page of the paper. I mean, it was the most humiliating, you know, embarrassing moment of my life. And um, I had nothing to lose. I had nothing left to lose. They repossessed the cars. They took all of our belongings. Like literally it was just my son and I. And so I just, the words, I mean, I had nothing left to lose and I wasn't going to speak it. That's how powerful that shame is. And so eventually though, they did drag it out of me. And um, once, once I spoke it, that's when my healing journey began. And um, so coming home and having to deal with, you know, part of achieving sobriety is taking responsibility for your mistakes. And, you know, a lot of innocent people were hurt in the crossfire of all of my addictions. And um, as much as I loved people, it was hard for me to learn that what I thought really was conveying how much I loved them isn't how it was received by them. And so it was, it has been, I've been sober now for six years. So it's been an incredible journey. And in that moment, I just realized that my destiny came calling. It just came cloaked in destruction. Like I couldn't be the human being I am today if I didn't walk through that fire. If, you know, everything collapsed around me, there was so much going on. You know, I was having night terrors. I was having flashbacks constantly once I came home because it was as if a portal had been opened. Mm -hmm. And all of this was just flooding me. And at the same time, I had no home. I had no job. I had nothing. I had, you know, reporters following me around and that like, and I'm trying to deal with this trauma, deal with this court case, deal with, you know, I desperately wanted to say, take responsibility for it and fix and, you know, fix it. And, but I also was trying to deal with all of this trauma. It, it was like nothing for me to be standing in the kitchen and just be hit with a flashback and crumble to the floor, sobbing. My son was I think 20 at the time. And you know, he had no idea about any of this. So all of a sudden, the woman who had raised him, who had put on this very strong front, this very much, you know, powerful business person, although it wasn't really, it was just such a front, such a facade. Like I was so broken and hurting on the inside and I just couldn't show that to the world. And so eventually on my darkest, one of my darkest days, I was looking on YouTube for a motivational speech or something to give me hope, something that would help me to know that I could survive this and get through it. And um, I couldn't find anybody. Like I found a lot of people who'd been through trauma, but what, what they didn't do was make any mistakes along the way. And, you know, I, it was like all these people, oh, well, she was this, but she didn't make any mistakes. So, you know, I'm like, I, I went through hell. I've survived hell. I feel like I have looked the devil in the eye numerous times. And to be trapped in that darkness and also be like, well, but I also made mistakes. And I had, you know, these addictions and all of that, trying to bring it all into play, take responsibility, but then also know you know, the 12-step programs tell us take responsibility. Trauma tells us it wasn't your fault. 
And so having to find the middle ground of that, because both were true yeah. and um, is ultimately what my story is about. And I promised God on that day, I said, if you will give me the strength to get through this, I will speak. Because what I have learned is that silence is the comrade of shame. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was just eating me alive. You know, it just was eating me alive. I think Brene Brown says something about that. You know the quote? Um, I know she says something. What does she say? She say something about silence and shame. I don't know what it is, but. Yeah, and and that's just it. I think that, um, and it makes sense that you would keep your mouth closed for all those years because A, you are feeling so much pain that's associated with, I got to keep quiet. So the idea of opening it even just a little bit is probably terrifying for your nervous system. Like, I don't, I don't, you like, there's that your self-protective parts, like, I don't want to feel even a little tiny inch of that. So, you know, it's that sworn to silence too. Um, But we need to speak. And, and that's where the shame starts to dissipate. Uh, absolutely because I thought if anybody knew my truth they wouldn't love me Mm. that's what I thought Mm. and it's exactly the opposite it's exactly the opposite and you know I say all the time I don't I don't want the people who say oh I've never been through anything in my life like those aren't the people I want on my team bring (laughs) me your broken I want the scars like I want the people your legs might be shaking but your hand and your so you your sword is in your hand and you're still fighting. Like those are the people I want on my team because those are people who've been through things and people who've learned like life isn't the same for each one of us. And one of the things that really I try to speak about is so many people will say, oh, I was sexually abused, but I didn't do what he did or I didn't do what she did. And trauma isn't the same for each person. And So you may have been sexually abused, but you weren't abused in my body, with my DNA, in my home, with my family and and all of that. So it can't you cannot compare what one person went through and what someone else went through and say, well, they they that's why we have to just look at people and not be judgmental. That's why we have to have compassion with people and say, you know, oh, why does she sleep around? Why does he cheat on his wife? Why does he do cocaine every day before work? Why does she drink too much? Mm-hmm. You don't know their story. Right. Like we don't know their story. And mm-hmm. I, I know you know this, but MRI scans of the adult brain will be entirely different than a person who was ch- abused in their childhood, whatever kind of abuse, doesn't have to be sexual, than an adult who didn't experience trauma. And the areas of the brain that are affected are the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, which deal with, you know, consequential thinking, impulsivity, the fight, flight, free, all of the Fs, you know, all of those. And um, when you, when I really looked back at my life, every single decision I made came from that trauma. And, um, you know, I think the, the really powerful thing is, is that there's, there's purpose in that pain if we let there be. And, you know, we can, we, I don't think we have to stay in healing forever. You know, yes, we have to always use our, our coping skills and the things that we learn to deal with triggers because they will always be there. 
but we don't have to be in a miserable place forever. We're not meant to suffer forever. We're meant to be able to move past that and find joy. Joy that, I mean, there were enough years of my life that I didn't have any. And, you know, I always say it's hard to get over a fear of the dark when your monsters were real. And my monsters weren't hiding in my closet. They were in my bed. And, you know, I mean, I couldn't go to bed at night. I would lay in my bed and watch the doorknob just hoping it wouldn't turn. It always turned, you know. I mean, I couldn't escape no matter what I did. And um, so those survival skills just really, really went with me in spite of being getting educated, becoming a counselor, doing all these things that I thought would help, you know, none of those did. Losing 243 pounds, having the skin removed, didn't, I mean, it fixed my physical health. It didn't do anything for it me. It didn't fix your nervous system. Yes. This, yes. But this is the piece that I think has been missing for so long is that we thought, we thought that if we could you know, change ourselves physically or, you know, don't deal with the addiction or just, but we have to be able to deal with the nervous system that got shaped very early um, to fear. And these responses, they get habituated. And so yes. we really need to learn safety once again. Yeah. And to feel safe, you know, to be in a place I was afraid my whole life. You know, I always, I mean, I had to date like men who were professional athletes. Like one was like a world champion in some like tough guy sport thing. You know, they were always people who could protect me. They treated me terrible. Like if dating the wrong men were like an Olympic event, I'd been a gold medalist because I picked the same man over and over and over, just a different body, you know. And but the one thing every one of them could do was physically protect me. And, um, but, you know, they never treated me well, you know, because still I was picking from a place of brokenness. And so, you know, instead of eventually, like, that's why I didn't date for six years. Like I came out of treatment six years ago. I still haven't dated yet. And I want to, like, I'm ready. I'm ready to begin to consider that. But I wanted to really take my time to be able to not make the same mistakes that I made in the past in choosing people and especially in responding to people and in understanding that love shouldn't hurt. And to um, that was very serious to me because men were a weakness of mine. And, you know, like I never would have ever been without somebody that I was involved with. So to have gone six years and, you know, I met a man recently, actually, that was exactly the type of person I would have dated before. And, you know, I said, I've dated you, had a baby by you and like gone through <laughs> hell with you already. No, thank you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because um, but I was really glad that I could recognize it because he would have been exactly what I wanted in the past. And to be able to recognize that and be like, Kelly, you've been down this road and to not, you know, because I would have a daydream of what I thought men would be like, you know, like I would build them up in my mind. Oh, he's this, he's that, he's going to be perfect. He's this and that. And no one can live up to your daydream of who the, you know, you think they are. And so, um, you know, yeah, for me, like I'm just at that point and I'm glad for that because I needed to learn to feel safe mm -hmm. on my own. 
Wow, Kelly, just amazing. You know, if anybody wants to read your story, I will put the link to your book. You have such a pretty face where you go into a lot more detail of your story yeah. um, in the show notes. But is there anything you want to say just before we close? Yeah, I think that I just, you know, I work as a supervisor on the National Suicide Hotline. And um, I do that work because it's powerful for me having had dark thoughts in the past myself before. And so if anyone is out there and feels like they are trapped in that darkness, you know, I promise if you look around, you'll see my footprints. And if, and if I can escape that, so can you. And, you know, like the light, the tiniest speck of light destroys the darkness. And what I know for sure is that the darkness lies to you. So the things you think in the darkness, the thoughts that run through your mind, like they're very rarely valid. And um, so I think that's why we're all here. If we're not here to try to spread light to help somebody who's suffering in that darkness, like there, I say in my book that hope stands for hold on pain ends. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it does, there is, there is hope that things get better. And, you know, you are worthy, whether no matter what's happened, you're worthy, you know, start today. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, at the, the last page of my book, actually, I'll read this quote. I end it with a quote that says, um, maybe the journey isn't so much about becoming anything. Maybe it's about unbecoming everything that isn't really you so you can be who you were meant to be in the first place. And for me, that's what my healing journey was, you know, being able to chip away the layers that, that my trauma packed on me and um, discover who I was meant to be originally. And so, yeah, that's, yeah, and I just I really, really want people to know that, um, you know, they can reach out to me on social media. I respond to every message I get. It might take me a while because I get a lot, but I do respond to messages. And, um, you know, I think that's why, that's why I survived. You know, I survived because we, we need to spread light for each other. And I love that you shared that hope. So hold on pain ends and it does. And I know when we have CPTSD complex trauma, we feel the nervous system is always activated. So it feels like the pain is ongoing. It's just ongoing. And the pain does and trust us when we, when we say that there's, there's a lot of hope for healing. So again, thank you, Kelly. You are so, so welcome.